Greetings, everybody. Welcome back to the Classroom 33 podcast. I'm Pastor Dustin here with Steve Prudian, and today we're actually going to piggyback off of last week a little bit. Right, Steve? Yes. All right. Last week we were talking uh, mostly out of Psalm 100, verse 4, and we were talking about how we prepare ourselves for prayer and how we take a posture of humility, and we're really going to take that posture of humility and we're going to pull that forward into the New Testament, uh, specifically into the Gospel of Matthew and what Jesus tells us about humility. And we're just going to take a little bit different angle on this posture of humility. So looking forward to it, Steve. How are you doing this week? Doing good so far this week. It's only Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> it is only Tuesday. Yep. But uh, we got a lot of week left. Hopefully it'll get better. All right, so we are starting, specifically we are starting in Matthew chapter 19. 18. 18. 18. 18. Sorry, I'm skipping ahead to the second part of it. Yes, you are. <laughs> chapter 18 of Matthew, and we are looking at the first five verses. I've never done the rest of the story first to get to the story. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you want to start with the story or the rest of the story? Well, the rest of the story won't make any sense unless you know the story. Okay. All right. So we're going to start with the story, and then we'll get the rest of it. Okay. So chapter 18, and this is, I'm reading specifically out of the New Testament in modern English, and this is by J.B. Phillips is the primary person on this and uh, it is a translation that I have not seen before but it's one that Steve brought in and uh, it's old it's old well it predates the living bible you know King James is old too Uh we still use that one Um, but it's a very readable version and so I kind of like how the layout is on this anyways since Our listener can't see that. I'll just get to it. It was at this time, which is probably where we need the rest of the story. I'll get get into that. (laughs) You'll get to that. But it was at this time that the disciples came to Jesus with the question, who is really the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to his side and set him on his feet in the middle of them all. Believe me, he said, unless you change your whole outlook and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is the man who can be as humble as this little child who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that's where our story ends. Steve, where does our story begin? The background of the story starts not in Jerusalem, not in Judea at all. It starts actually in a province, actually the capital city of Galilee, which is which is Capernaum. So it's a pretty huge metropolis okay. for that day and time. The disciples have been walking with Jesus for almost three years now. Okay. And Jesus was now talking about this kingdom, yes. this new kingdom that was coming. Well, of course... Human beings are always interested in kingdoms that are coming. 
Yep. Sometimes the opposition is also interested in preventing kingdoms to come because they like their kingdom the way it is. Yes. Well, the disciples had a little bit of prodding. Did you know that there were two disciples that were mama's boys? Yes. Okay. Yes, I was aware of that. Right. Which, right. Yep. So, um, the apostle by the name of, a disciple at this point in time, by the name of John and his brother, uh-huh. his mother put them up to it and said, hey, why don't you go to Jesus and ask Jesus what kind of position he's going to give you in his kingdom? Right. And so the disciples all started talking about that. And if I was in that group, I'd be a little miffed. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, the the conversation came out. Yep. And Jesus saw something right away. And what was that? He saw that the disciples wanted to one-up each other. Uh Uh-huh. He saw that there was a little bit of pride there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Jesus knew that he couldn't show any favorisy. Mm-hmm. Right. So he decided, as always, to do an object lesson. Yep. Yep. It's a good thing that there was a child close by. It was a God thing that there was a child right. close by, maybe. <laughs> so he pulls, he pulls this child in. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing is he's actually baselining the disciples. Yep. He's base, he's what he's saying to the disciples. The child is greater than you guys. Cuz you guys have expectations. But the child is just here as a child with no expectations. Right. The child will will listen to what I have to say out of the innocence and out of the curiosity of a child. Yes. The child, different than you guys, will talk, debate, and argue about what it is I'm saying and what it is that I expect for you to do, mm-hmm. but the child won't do that. Nope. So the question is, the greatest in my kingdom has to have the attributes of a young child. Yeah. Dustin, what is the one major attribute? You've had children, okay, and you've had them through different ages. Yep. Okay. With a young child, what is the major attribute that they have? Dependency. Dependency. Exactly. And that's what Jesus wanted to teach his disciples. Mm-hmm. Is, is that you can't do it on your own. I don't care how smart you are or what you've accomplished or how long you've been with me. Right. You have to be like this little child. Oh, by the way, this is my ministry, not your ministry. Yes. Yep. You know, there is, there, there is a little further on in Matthew where he does the teaching and the teaching is the first the greatest shall come last yes and the last or the least 
will come first. And here he is. Uh-huh. The child <laughs> is the least. Uh-huh. Sometimes I think that Jesus either sad or he chuckles over how complicated we make trying to understand what he's trying to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so it's very simple. And it really just is who do you depend on? Mhm. Do I depend on me or do I depend on God? That's it. If you think about a child. Yes. Okay. If you can go back that far in your life when you were a child. But maybe you can't remember back that far, so you'll have to think about your own children. Right. Okay. What does a child depend upon a parent for? For pretty much everything. It depends on the stage. It does depend on the stage of the child because a baby is... An infant is dependent on parent for everything but the air that they breathe. And as they get older, they become more independent. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting is? Is that a parent is taught, is instructed to bring up a child in the ways of the Lord. Yep. So when they are old, mm-hmm. which means throughout their life, not just when they get old, throughout right. their life, okay, that they won't depart. Right. Okay. Number one commandment, okay. However, the child has to be alive to be able to give him that kind of instruction. Right. So a parent, a parent's responsibility is to care for that child up through maturity. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ is a parent model to us where he's caring for his children up into maturity. A long time ago, I had, and it seems like I had this question and I didn't expect this particular answer. Okay. And I had to. I had to, to wrestle with the answer because it's not something that I wanted to accept as truth. Do you know the statement that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them mm-hmm. because they don't know what they're doing? Right. Well, I wanted to argue with that, that they knew exactly what they were doing. The Pharisees knew what they were doing. The Roman soldiers knew what they were doing. Pilate knew what was going to happen. Herod knew what was going to happen. How can you say they don't know what they're doing? Well, they knew what they thought they were doing. They didn't know what they were actually doing. Because none of those people up even until the moment of his death, regarded him as the Son of God. They had no clue. They were completely and totally blind to it. So they did know what they thought they were doing. They thought that they were putting a heretic to death, a false prophet, a blasphemous rabbi. That's what they thought they were doing. 
they didn't actually know. It's pretty harsh sentence for something you don't know. That's absolutely correct. The answer was, and this is where I had the struggle, and the, and the answer has everything to do with salvation. Okay. The answer is this, is don't you know that all of those people, whether it been the jailer, the executioner, the priest, the governor, they all had the same thing in common. That they were children. That they were a creation mm -hmm. of God. Right. But as a child, they didn't know God. Right. Or they didn't know who the real God is. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't think that the application was important or correct until it was asked of me, would you exclude anybody from the gift of salvation? And I thought about all these guys who just were involved in crucifying Jesus, mm -hmm. and I said, maybe those guys. And the answer is that's not the right answer. It's not. The answer is, is that he came for all men. He doesn't yes. want any man to perish, eat, perish, even his executioner. Yep. And there's there's a teaching. How do I say this? Um, a lot of our translations of the Bible and a lot of our teachings around Easter time we're told about the thief on the cross, the two, mm -hmm. the two that hang on either side of Jesus, thief one and thief two. And I think that comes from our culture of kind of judging the level of sin, right? Because the one thief is ridiculing Jesus and the other one says, don't you know who this guy is? And Jesus tells him, you know, you'll be with me in paradise today. You know, you're, you're saved. You're good. Um, but that is, that's been translated as thief. But thieves don't get crucified. He wasn't a thief. Murderers get crucified. Terrorists. Terrorists, right. Murderers. Murderers, not not even murderers. You're, you would have to be um, guilty of more of a massacre or a serial of murders in order to get crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst criminals. And so a thief doesn't belong on the cross. Somebody who belongs on the cross is a terrorist, an enemy of the state of Rome belongs on the cross. And who was that person that Pilate wanted to occupy that space? Barabbas. Barabbas, right. Right. <laughs> and and we're told what Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurgent. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of person that we're talking about being on the cross next to Jesus. It's not a thief. He killed Romans. He killed Romans. He was against Rome. He was a terrorist. He was the worst of the worst of the worst type of criminal. And... 
for me at least when when I was studying and I was say enlightened to that fact when the when when that when that clicked for me it changes your perspective on a whole lot of things and like Jesus saying forgive them because he really does want them to be forgiven what they're doing although he is the son of god and they're killing the son of god what they believe they're doing is killing a rebel a radical a potential insurgent isn't worse than what they're doing to the man on the cross isn't worse than what he has done in his life and sin is sin and anybody who's guilty of anything and not forgiven can't go to heaven and so like you said and I can't I can't remember off of the top of my head which of the epistles it's in but God is long suffering and the reason for his patience in sending Jesus back is so that all who might come to know him do come to know him. And that's a paraphrase, but God wants everybody who can and will be saved to be saved. And past that point, their history doesn't matter anymore to him. He doesn't, he doesn't keep count. He doesn't tally those things. You know, Paul writes that he doesn't, Love doesn't keep score. You know, the Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? Love doesn't keep score. Love is patient. Love is kind. Okay. He's talking about God. God is patient. God is kind. God is... God doesn't keep score. He doesn't hold our past sins against us. We've been forgiven. We have salvation. We move forward. And... That's not wishful thinking for Paul because he was a murderer and a persecutor of Christians. He was telling us that even the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. And he's chief among them. And he's chief among them can come to God and be saved. The trick is you have to become like this child. The word like a child. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unless, unless. Right. You change, you mm-hmm. change and come like a child. Right. What does the child symbolize? That word child, what does that child represent? Well, we've talked a little bit. I, I think the child, the represents that dependency represents that humility that ah un- you got the word humility ah i added did, i did, added that word that was the, in there it was the in question, there did the very question that the disciples came and asked jesus was that a question of humility who is the greatest i'm i'm going to flip that question right back on you and ask you which of the 10 commandments are they breaking by even asking that question well, unfortunately, they're very covetous. They are very covetous and very self 
idolatrous uh-huh. in that I they're puffing themselves. I'm self-important. They're a little. It's a little bit of self-worship going on. Uh-huh. I deserve it more than somebody else does. So, which is a very unhumble place to be. It's a very prideful, very arrogant place to be. So, how does a child respond to Jesus' words? Typically, um, child's children respond to Jesus' words very favorably. They don't question them. They don't question them. They they eat them up, if you will. They they take them in. They digest them. They hear them. They seek to understand them. They have it. This is another thing that I I've kind of looked into and studied um, off and on. And, you know, the reason why it's so much easier for a child than it is for an adult to believe, just to believe in God and to believe the story of Jesus and that the Bible is true. And we are all born with two things, I think is what it comes down to. One of them is biblical. The other one is just me kind of putting it out there, right? So we know that we're all born with a sin nature. We are all born essentially condemned. But I think, and again, this is this is my thoughts. This isn't biblical, right? Um, I think we're all born with a sense of awe and wonder, with that curiosity, with that desire to know but we don't have any preconceived notions we don't have any biases biases have to be learned and so when you read in the bible about um israel marching around the walls of jericho seven days and on the seventh day they marched around seven times and they blew trumpets and the walls came tumbling down as a child you don't question that. You picture it in your head or you're shown a picture or a video of a depiction of it and you accept it. Because it's easier. You have that sense of awe and wonder. You don't have that bias that this is completely ridiculous. Things like this don't actually happen. Well, no, things like that do actually happen. It did actually happen. And as an adult, it's a much bigger step to accept that which we've been trained to be biased against, that supernatural, than it is for a child. A child lives on the edge of supernatural. If they wrap a towel around their shoulders, they become a superhero wearing a cape and flying around the living room. Their feet never leave the ground, but they're flying. And they live in that space of awe and wonder, and that supernatural is just, they walk hand in hand with it. And so for them to hear the Bible stories is easy to believe. It's easy to take in. And it's easy to hear those lessons and kind of assimilate them into themselves unlike when we're adults. And now we have these biases. Now we have 
these things, these chips on our shoulders where I might look at you and it's um, it's the pitfall of comparison. When we compare ourselves to other people, we lose. It doesn't matter if you compare yourself to be better or you compare yourself to be worse, you lose. And that's, I think that's really at the heart of that 10th commandment, don't covet anything. Because it's really that comparison that I see what you have and I want what you have, or I see what you are and I want what you are. I see, or I see what you have and what I have is better. I see what you are and what I am is better. It is, it either leads us to desire something unhealthily that hasn't been given to us by God, hasn't been ordained by God for us to have, and we lean on our own dependence to get it, and so therefore become prideful. Or we see what the other person is or has as being less, and we get that arrogance and we get that pridefulness and that attitude that um, Pastor Dave in his final series, he he referred to the Greek word fusio a number of times. And it's something that has stuck with me, just that idea of, am I fusio? Am I puffed up? Do I have a big head? And that's, I really... I really see that going both ways with that, with that comparison. So that's why I think it's so much easier for children. They don't have that, those preconceived notions. They don't have the biases that the world has taught us as adults. And they walk hand in hand with the supernatural all the time. They want it to be real in a lot of cases. And so when in the Bible you tell them, you know, David killed Goliath as a, essentially a child with a stone thrown from a sling. And they want it to be true. And so it's easy for them to believe it. You hit on the word of the greatest sin in the word of God. Pride. Pride. And when these disciples asked the question who is the proudest who is the greatest yeah who is the proudest jesus brought in i'm no one yep a child he's the greatest Uh uh-huh okay not you guys he's the greatest why because he's humble Mm -hmm. and he's willing to learn accept jesus who he is and do what Jesus says because of the fact that he doesn't think he's the greatest. Yep. Okay. He just knows that he's a child. And as a child, he is dependent, okay, upon the Lord to be his Lord. Right. The disciples figured after two and a half years of being with Jesus that they've actually stepped up in rank. Wrong. 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 Now, Wrong. if you if you take and we go to um, the second half of Jesus's um, 
speaking, okay? Okay. Jesus is also, in a sense, teach disciples a lesson that they need greatly. Okay. And this is in Matthew 19, 24 is the first place we see it, but it is, it's it's uh, scattered throughout other books of the Bible. It's found also in uh, Mark as well as in Luke. Yes. Do you have that there in front of you where you can read Matthew 19, verse 24? Yes, I do. 1924, again I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is, so I actually had a class on the verses that come immediately before this. Let's share it. So, um, Part of part of my schooling was, um, you know, learning about the Gospels, and one of one, I shouldn't say it was a class on this, but there was um, one one section of this class on the you know part on the syllabus where we had the parable of the rich man, the rich young ruler, depending on which of the three Gospels you're looking at it, and we compared and contrasted and for seven weeks part of our focus was on this section and there's two things that are ultimately at play immediately before this this is uh, he comes and he says teacher teacher what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, sell all of your possessions, give the money to charity, and come follow me. And we run into the, the two things. One of them we've already seen is that he is somebody of self-importance. He carries a pride. He has an issue of pride. He even tells Jesus that he has kept every commandment since a child. So he's he's proud. He's boastful. And not true. I mean, just quite frankly, not true. None of us are able to do that. Jesus is the only one who has. So the other part of it is he's idolizing his money. And his money is more important to him than the kingdom of heaven. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And, of course, as a rich person, the word inherit means something very different. He, inherit means given to you more or less by default. Right? I'm an only child. When my parents pass away, I will inherit what is theirs. So... It comes to me because of their passing. Not because of anything I have done, in a sense, because of what I've lost. But he's not willing to give up anything. He's not willing to lose anything 
to get the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. And so he has a pride issue, a really big pride issue. And he also idolizes his money. So being a proud idolater, Jesus tells him, sell everything, give all the money to charity, and then come follow me. It's very difficult to separate a man's wealth from his personage. Yes. Because oftentimes a man's status is dependent upon his wealth. Temporal status, but yes. Now, because Jesus was talking about this kingdom that was coming, mm -hmm. this um, rich guy. Yeah. I think what he wants to inherit, okay, is a piece of the action in the kingdom. Oh, he wants status in the kingdom, no exactly. doubt. Yeah. So it really isn't about becoming a disciple and following Jesus Christ. Oh, no. It's no, no, more no. about position. He wants to be able to step into this. He He's ready for he's ready for a leadership position. He's and he's gunning for it. Yep. I want to get back to the child, Pop, before I go into the thing about the camel. Yep. Okay. There's a reason why God didn't say donkey or horse, which I'll get into in a minute. Uh-huh. Okay. Um But the lesson that I had to learn is that all men, in comparison to the maturity and the knowledge of God, are all children. Yep. And that we, as mature Christians, should not judge anyone's childish behavior because the very fact is, is that they don't know any better. Right. You would like to think that they do, but they're just children. Right. So we have to approach them, even if it's the thief on the cross. Yep. As a child. Of course. Because that's how God would approach them. That's how God does approach them. Mm -hmm. Now, to get down to this rich young ruler, and all of a sudden, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he starts telling the camel story Yes. And he's talking about threading a needle. Yep. Okay. This makes no sense. But there's a reason why Jesus chooses a camel over a horse or a donkey or any other beast of burden. What do you know about camels? I know several things. I know actually the cultural reference to which you're referring on this, even though um, in my research, biblical scholars are pretty pretty seriously divided on whether it was meant as a hyperbole, which was a common thing that Jesus used, or if what you're going to tell us is the actual truth. Now, I don't see why it can't be both. I don't know well enough to say that uh, to say that the historical reference is wrong. So, so I know a couple of things about camels. They're very tall. Yes, they are, they are very very tall creatures, and they're also, especially in that region of the world, very valuable 
as um, as cargo carriers. Exactly. Who owns them? Typically, rich people. Yes. Good. You, you got you got to have a little bit of money to have a camel, especially to have more than one. Yeah. Yep. It was a it was a big deal that Solomon had camels. Mm-hmm. Same for Job. Yes. Yep. That that was important to us. It means very little, but to them that was a big deal. Why does Jesus pick this animal? Because of their height. There's another reason. And what's that? They stink. Oh, they yeah, that's they're very unclean. <laughs> they, and they put off an odor. They stink. They they do. And I'm going to tell you just a super brief story here. Um, so. At one point in time, I was on a family vacation as a child, and we were in this ethnic marketplace, and um, one of the things that they had were leather belts, and it was camel leather. <laughs> my brother my brother wanted one of these belts and just assumed that the smell of the place was not necessarily from the leather, but from other aromas, other aroma-producing things. And even if it was the leather, a belt is quite small. As long as he had it, that belt stank. And it made him stink. He couldn't wear it. He couldn't wear it. He didn't, ultimately, he didn't have it for all that long. But camels smell terrible. And if you can... If you can imagine the size of a belt, the piece of leather needed to make a belt, and you couldn't stand within six or eight feet of him without smelling that belt when he was wearing it. That's that's a powerful, pungent aroma. The disciples stink. The, yeah. cr- the question that they asked based upon the motives that they were coming from was a stinking question. So yep. Jesus put them into the stinky category. Yep. But now, the rest of the story. Yes. People talk about, oh, it must be an illustration that Jesus is talking about when he talks about a camel going through the eye of a needle. But right. the needle is an actual physical place. Do you know what it was an actual physical place to? Um don't recall exactly where it was to it was near one of the entrances to jerusalem it's but it called wasn't. the narrow gate okay and the narrow gate is not only not very wide it is also not very tall right now a camel can get through that gate right but he has to strip Yep. He'll never fit through the gate carrying his riches. Right. He'll never get through that gate standing upright. No, he won't. He actually has to shed his wealth. Yep. Shed his riches. Yep. And humble himself and go through that gate on his knees. Which is another reason to use a camel instead of a horse or a donkey, because he can as far as I as far as I know, neither one of those animals can walk on their knees no. the way a camel can. But the question is, is that if he is entering the gates of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. what is he really entering? The kingdom of heaven. 
the kingdom of heaven, the place of God. Yeah. So Jesus says, you've got to become like a camel. Yep. Which means you don't have no greatness. No. Nope. You stink. <laughs> and in fact, you need to be like this child and show some humility. Mm-hmm. Shed your pride because it's not allowed past that gate. Yep. So I have some syn- synonymous words, okay? Ooh, all right. The camel is a representative of sin because he stinks. Okay? Yep. Because man at this point in time considered the camel of significant value. Mm-hmm. Man's perspective of that camel was not God's perspective of that camel. And many times man holds on to things that he considers as rich that God considers as worthless. Yep. Okay. The second thing is, 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 is that we'll see that with rich people, okay, that they have ambition. Yep. But their ambition is tied to the value of their riches. Mm-hmm. Which lends itself to the one sin that God despises the most, which is? Pride. Pride. Okay. What God is asking, if you want to come into his house, you shed everything of value that you're carrying, and you come in lowly, humbly. Yep. What Jesus is really saying to the disciples, you got to change. You got to admit to the fact that you're a sinner. Yep. And the fact is, 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 is that you need to do a 180. You need to turn around. And rather than stand up in front of me and say, I'm the greatest, you need to get down and say, I'm the lowest. Right. And the fact is, is, is that God will honor anyone who acknowledges that it's by grace. It's only the lonely that are saved. Yep. Yes, it is. So the question is, the end of my story is this. Okay. Do you see people the way Jesus does? All his children. At any age, they just don't know all that they need to know. But Jesus is willing, if they're willing to wait upon him, to teach him God's ways in the knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it explains why he said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know. However, there is a promise here for old people. Do you know that there's a promise here for old people? All right, give it to me. The promise for old people is in Ephesians five, twenty-seven. That if, in fact, you will become that camel, 
-hmm. that can enter through the needle, then Jesus will present you to his Father God with no spots or wrinkles, yep. holy and blameless. So therefore, there's hope for old people who have spots and wrinkles. There's, <laughs> there's hope for everyone. <laughs> there is hope for everyone. But yeah, you do have to... You do have to recognize that you're a sinner. You have to leave all that baggage behind, all the pride and all the earthly, temporary things, and humble yourself. And every day you need to be dependent yes. on God for not just 15 minutes, not just half a day, but moment by moment, all day long, because his mercies are new every morning. Yes, they are. Yep. And we show our dependency to God in a couple of different ways. And one of them is through prayer. There was a comedian who made this statement. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of theological implications. The statement is this, is how long can you hold your breath? Hmm. Not long enough. Not long at all. <laughs> Not long Not enough. Not long at all. Right. So subsequently, whose breath are you holding? Interesting. The breath of God, who gives yep. you the ability to breathe. Right. Right. So therefore, that piece of paper you have on your desk yes. is critical that people know how to find peace with God. Yep. I would agree with that. And it starts by being coming as a child. That humility. Yep. That's right. Absolutely. So humility and dependency. You know, one of the things we don't do, Dustin. What's that? Is we don't invite people to go further with us. We don't invite people to ask us questions about what we're talking about. We don't ask people questions about do they have peace with God? Do they want to have peace with God? Right. Unfortunately, within a Christian church, we forget the world outside. We even forget the people in our church that are subject to the world outside. It happens. Yeah. And we don't think about the very basic reason why Jesus came to seek and to save the right. lost. Well, we know for certain that Emmaus was not Jesus' destination. That wasn't the place where he was going to on that morning where he rose from the dead. But he walked with those men anyways. Where is Jesus going to? He's going to the disciples where they're hidden. And where is Jesus going to today? Us. Us. You and me and anyone who will humble themselves to receive him. He is walking. I've heard it described that uh, Jesus walks behind us until we invite him to walk alongside of us. And so footsteps in the sand, they're not your steps. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a different thing. That's yes. not what I was referring to. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. All right. 
Anything else? Do we have any other nuggets of wisdom that uh, we can leave our listeners with? I don't have any more. All right. I don't have anything else to add to this either. Actually, I do. I do, because we were talking about value. And we were talking about value, the things that we value here on earth and how God values them. And I have an illustration that is just about as extreme as I think we can get. And so when we look at the book of Revelation and we look to the future and we see the new earth and the new Jerusalem, God's kingdom on the new earth, you would expect it to be made out of the most valuable materials, right? The most precious materials that God has created. And compare that to what God has created and we consider to be valuable. And you tell me, why are there no diamonds in the New Jerusalem? Because God is the glory. There is no need for a diamond because there's nothing more glorious than the light of God. There's gold. There's gold. There's sapphires. There's other gemstones. There's other minerals that are highly prized by God as part of his creation. Diamonds are not there. As humans, in this world, we value diamonds very highly. They are one of the most precious, if not the most precious, gemstone. They do not exist as part of the creation of the New Jerusalem. God does not value them as we do. So, and actually some of these things aren't very highly prized by people at all. Carnelian. That's one I'm somewhat familiar with. That is what we would consider to be a lesser gemstone. But God prizes it enough to use it to build his new Jerusalem. So, just a thought. All I know is, 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 is that a diamond is nothing more than a refractory of light. Mm-hmm. A diamond itself cannot generate light in itself. No, it cannot. It can only let light pass through its many facets. So you see something beyond the stone itself. All right. Well, everybody out there, thank you for listening to us. Thank you for uh, putting up with us waxing philosophical a little bit while we talk theological. And uh, Steve, thank you very much for coming in. You never know what's going to come out of these meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the truth? All right. Have a great week. You're welcome.